So you guys may be wondering why we're starting off the show with that piece and uh, what it is. Well, that is actually former Navy SEAL Ron Bellin playing some acoustic guitar. He posted that on his Facebook on January 28th, just a few days ago, him doing a little Bon Jovi Dead or Alive, which is pretty cool. But the unfortunate news is that Ron, who you may remember from the show, has passed away, uh, I believe, from a heart attack, from what we're hearing Anybody who's met Ron know that he was an absolutely massive guy, so the heart attack, unfortunately, is not the biggest surprise in terms of just his size. Uh, Ron was a Navy SEAL Master Chief serving for 25 years from 1989 to 2014. His call sign, as you may remember, was Reaper 01. Uh, Shortly after retiring from the Navy, he launched Reaper Outdoors. He was an avid hunter and started his hunting show, Survive the Hunt. That's why he was on with us for the first time back on episode 126 to um, promote Survive the Hunt and promote Reaper Outdoors. I still actually have some of the stuff he sent me. Like he, he launched a Reaper Outdoors hot sauce that is still at my parents' house. I've seen it in their refrigerator. Uh, and then he was back on episode 139 just to discuss what he was up to. Uh, really great guy. And I did get to meet Ron in person at SHOT Show. You may even have uh, Jack. He was at the the um, Ranger Up party, uh, which you might remember from that year at SHOT Show. I don't know. And, I've only been to that party one year. And I think that was the year I was there. Oh, really? Yeah, Ron was there and, and was really nice in person. And the one story that I do have that's pretty funny, I was not there for this because I left that party a little bit early. But the next day, I woke up, and I was in the same room as you may remember if you've been listening this long. Uh, as Jim West, we were, we were sleeping in the same room of this house where all of us were staying at that, you know, at that time for SHOT Show. And Jim was telling me that some guy at the Ranger Up party was trying to start shit with him. And Jim was, like, ready to fight this guy, according to him. And the way that Jim described this to me, uh, what went down... 
he was standing in front of like a large TV cabinet as he's telling me this. And he's like, and then you got Ron Bellin with me. And Ron is about the size of this fucking cabinet behind me. <laughs> and, he, and he's like, and at this point, this guy didn't want to mess with me. So th- like, that's the one kind of funny story I have. Cause Ron was just like a, a huge guy. And I actually think I mentioned him a few episodes ago because when we had Carmen on, you mentioned that we had another guy with an eye patch on, which was Dan Crenshaw. Uh-huh. And then I think I mentioned that the other guy with an eye patch that we had on was Ron Bellin. How, uh, how did uh, how did Ron lose his eye? That I don't know. But I mean, if you look back at those pictures, I posted one of him uh, out hunting with the eye patch. I saw the picture. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I, sorry. I never got the chance to meet him. I, I mean, I, I think he, I would have recalled if I met somebody, uh, probably cause he was tow- just towering over me like that. Yeah. The way that, um, I actually saw our friend Rad posted on Instagram. He said, I'll always remember meeting the real life snake Pliskin, uh, <laughs> which is from what game, what game is that? It's uh, snake Pliskin is escape from New York. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's what, it, and he does look like that. Yeah. Yeah. He does. <laughs> he's got, yeah. The whole thing going. Yeah. So, Rest in peace, Ron. I wanted to have a little bit of a dedication there. Yeah, that's and I mean, sad, man. For a guy who served 25 years, 1989 to 2014, I don't know exactly how old he was, but that is a hell of a career. It's amazing. Yeah, and retiring as a master chief. Um, all right, with that, we're going to have Mark Yablanca on. Uh, one last thing I know you wanted to get into, though, is something you've written about and have been following. Finally, the U.S. Justice Department has opened up a probe into the Jeffrey Epstein controversial plea deal and there's been some articles about that yeah uh well jeff epstein got like the epitome of a sweetheart plea deal yeah um he was he stood accused of uh sexually molesting or assaulting you know upwards to a hundred girls um and if you guys don't know what i'm talking about you can go back and uh and look at some past stories the i believe it was the miami herald did a few months back like a huge huge expose i mean i had written about this subject before so had others um the daily beast had actually done a pretty good job at following this story um and and staying on top of it the miami herald uh i mean they really dropped a bomb on this that really just blew up the entire subject they did a really big investigative piece on it and if you go digging into this whole thing, there there are so many threads to this deal with Jeffrey Epstein. Um, and I'll, I'll try to be very, very brief with it. He uh, was a school teacher in Brooklyn for a little bit. Uh, and then he went to work for a hedge fund here in Manhattan. And very quickly, within a few years, he decided to open up his own hedge fund that only caters to billionaires. Like this guy had this meteoric rise and no one knows how he came upon his fortune, how he made these connections, how he went from a nobody to being a billionaire. It seems like almost overnight. Um, And what, what he stands accused of, I mean, is essentially, you know, trafficking underage girls. Um, There's also a litany of different allegations uh, him and Ghislaine Maxwell, who is the daughter of uh, this this um, British newspaper magnate, who, I mean, it, it just, like I said, there's so many threads. I mean, Epstein knew Hillary Clinton. He knew Donald Trump. Um, you can find pictures of them together. Uh, and he had a, a private island in the Caribbean that had been dubbed Lolita Island. Uh, where um, Bill Clinton had been flown there on Jeff Epstein's private jet. 
Uh, he hosted a, uh, a prominent astrophysicist out there uh, who recently passed away. I mean, there are all sorts of celebrities. There's British royalty all wrapped up in this thing. It's like a mega conspiracy, uh, except it's, it appears to be largely real. Although, you know, just because, you know, just to clarify, just because Donald Trump was there or Bill Clinton was there. Trump, Trump, Trump was not there. Trump was not not, there? not okay. the island, no. But either way, it doesn't mean that they were engaging in whatever this guy was. No, I no. Don't wanna, it, I don't want the Pizzagate crowd to, right. you know. There's no, there's no evidence that you know, Bill Clinton uh, it, it was involved in illegal behavior. Um, but I think we can say that, you know, if you're catching a ride out to a place called Lolita Island on, on Jeffrey Epstein's private jet, uh, it doesn't look good. Suspicious. <laughs> it's a little <laughs> suspicious. Um. It's just a, a a hell of a crazy story, and uh, Epstein is a convicted pedophile. Um, he 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 got as the investigation did kick off. Um, they he he p- had a plea bargain deal uh, with uh, the courts down there in Florida, where his mansion is. He has another place here in Manhattan, over by the Frick. Um, I believe he lives right across the street from Bill Cosby, actually. <laughs> Yeah, uh, like I said, it's it gets very very interesting, um, and and just like talking about it makes you sound like a, a conspiracy theorist or Alex Jones or something like that. But this this really happened. I mean, this this is stuff that can be documented. And uh, the plea bargain was that he, I think he got to spend like two weeks in prison. He could come and go from prison as he wanted, um, and he just had to like go there and sleep there at night and. He didn't even have to register as a sex offender here in the state of New York. And I remember reading an article about it and the courts were the court. The judge here in Manhattan was like, I have never in my life seen prosecutors argue that a sex offender should not be put on the sex offender registry. Like, like he was, he, you could even, you could see he, the judge was baffled. Like, like what is going on here? And I, I don't know what's going on here, but I mean, if you, I don't think you have to be a genius to understand that Jeffrey Epstein accumulated an intense amount of wealth and power. And according to some of the young women, young girls that he exploited, he kept a little black book where he recorded um, who was sleeping with underage girls and what their fetishes were and all the details. The amount of uh, leverage of uh, blackmail material that Jeffrey Epstein most likely had over powerful individuals, again, ranging from high-level politicians to uh, monarchs to business leaders and other billionaires, uh, would have been extraordinary. And I have to wonder if now the news that the Department of Justice is investigating the plea deal, if that isn't being investigated, that there's some sort of criminal corruption behind the plea deal itself. And it goes, if you look at the articles, which I was skimming through, it goes into the actual New York politician. Yes. They're investigating him. Well, there's a politician down in Miami. I believe he runs the Department of Labor. Um, yes. I, I'd yeah, have to yeah. check on that, that but that's he, he was intimately involved in the plea bargain that, that was, uh, that went down in, in Florida. Yeah. Which means likely a blackmail on that guy. Who knows? Uh, who knows how far that spider web goes and who has leverage over who. Um, and it's just, this is one of those cases. Like I suspect the, the real truth behind it will never come out because it would take down so many powerful people. Yeah. You know, it, it's like, uh, remember that episode of the wire 
where they talk about the how how the city is reluctant to put wires and, and start wiretapping, you know, say like um like a prostitute's hotel room, because you never know who's gonna come walking through the door. It could be the fucking mayor. Mm-hmm. You know, so <laughs> I think it's one of those cases where it's like you start this a, a real investigation into Epstein and all of his activities. And who came walking through that door over the years? Sure. And, and, and I guarantee you, I mean, it's names we're all very familiar with. Yeah. Well, we'll see more as, as more comes out. It is about time that they launch this, though, um, that launch this probe to see what exactly. And it's probably because of that, um, that piece. Uh, again, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the article, but I, I believe it was I was the, just on it. It so. was the Miami Herald that published that big invest. It was like a five part, six part investigative piece um, that lit a fire under the asses. Yeah, it's right here. Justice Department opens probe into Jeffrey Epstein plea deal. It's from the Miami Herald. By Julie Brown. She was the one that did the original um, the original piece on, or not the original piece, but the big long-form investigative article about Yeah, all and the investigation is into Secretary of Labor Alex Acosta, uh, and it's being launched uh, by, as a request by Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska. So... We're going to see what happens from here. I mean, just for instance, just a matter of for instance, we went through the, the much uh, the contentious 2016 election. Everyone's throwing dirt at everyone else. I mean, Donald Trump allegedly or his his peoples, you know, Roger Stone and, and such going to WikiLeaks, trying to get the Russians to dig up dirt on the Democrats. I mean, dirty games were being played left and right. But we never heard during the 2016 campaign. How come no one brought up? The two candidates are both associated with Jeffrey Epstein. How, we never heard that. That was never mentioned. I mean, it would probably dig up I mean, or, or build to some crazy conspiracy stuff, as you said, because it's on the verge of that. Because then, you know, there's the whole Pizzagate thing that all these politicians are pedophiles. You know, we don't know if, you know, Bill Clinton or, or anything was engaged in pedophilia. And if you start to make those accusations and, and just you go per, down a per, personally, of, I doubt he was because, I mean, everything we know about Bill, it seems that he likes grown women yeah. a lot. Well, <laughs> and, although Monica Lewinsky was, you know, significantly younger, not, sure. not a child. Sure. But, but again, I mean, that's speculative. But I mean, whatever the case is, um, but it's not a conspiracy theory. I, I, you know, Bill and Hillary and Donald, they all knew Epstein. They all traveled in the same circles, you know, and that was never that was never brought up during the campaign. And it's very rarely brought up to this day. Yeah. Well, we'll see if there's any um, any more that comes out from this. And if there is, it's going to be, as you said, pretty uh, explosive because of who's connected with him and and our president as well as I'm. I'm telling you, it'll it'll never all come out because it would probably collapse like half of our government, you know, yeah. if like all the you know unseemly details started to be revealed. Yeah. Well, check out the article. It's uh, Justice Department opens probe into Jeffrey Epstein plea deal. Oh, you can also check out your old article right at, at the News Rep. Yeah, my mine was I wrote like what in 2015 or something like that, and it was uh, it had a, a pretty explosive title. I, it's like the the power elites billionaire pedophile blackmail network. I think was the title of the article. But you did a nice um kind of web drawn right by didn't um Jason Kenitzer do a graphic with like a web of all the people? No, 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 no. That was a different. Oh, okay, okay. different blackmail network that I wrote about. Um, but yeah, I wrote that article a while back trying yeah. to connect some of these dots. 
I'm watching this video. You still got playing here. <laughs> uh, you know, Epstein's also friends with uh, who's that film director? Um, Roman Polanski? No, not or? Polanski. The other one who's accused of uh, molesting the stepdaughter. Um, he's famous. Oh, Woody Allen. Woody Allen. Pals yeah. with Woody Allen. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely uh, some weird stuff. Yeah. So there's, there's video on here as well. Yeah. You see this, how they, um, Epstein had uh, pictures of child pornography on the wall. Fucking crazy. So when you walked into his house, you committed a federal crime right off the bat by, by viewing child pornography. So you're compromised from the very beginning, the second you walk through the door. Like he had created a system like to game the law. Like he knew exactly what he was doing, like the flight logs uh, for the, the Lolita Express to the, the pedophile island. He had Bill Clinton and all these other names in the flight logs. And that's intentional so he can push that information out as like a uh, as like a fucking hip check, and say, hey, like don't push this issue because we have records. This yeah. stuff's gonna come out. But uh, yeah, with that, well, let's get over to uh, something completely different. Mark Yablanka. Really glad that Mark uh, reached out because, as I mentioned earlier during the intro, Jim Morris is a mutual friend of the show. And Mark has written several books on Vietnam, the latest of which is Vietnam Bao Chi, Warriors of Word and Film. And the interesting thing about this book is, as you say uh, early on in the book, there's plenty of books written about Vietnam from the journalists who were there. But this is about the men who served and reported on the ground what was happening in Vietnam. And and also to give some background on, on Mark for the audience, Mark also served as a chief warrant officer in the California State Military Reserve and also served as a public affairs officer. So great to have you on the show and excited to dig into this book. And I think our audience is really going to love it. Well, it's great to be with you. And uh, you mentioned uh, Jim Morris. And I also know from looking at Software Radio, you've also mentioned another hero of mine, the late uh, Jerry Yellen. Yeah. And so I'm honored to be in, in great company. And uh, thank you for having me on. Thank you so much. Yeah, Jerry Yellen was mm-hmm. great. I think, and I think that may have been his last interview when uh, Brandon interviewed him because just a few short months after that, he, he passed away, unfortunately. But uh, I mean, at an older age, but truly a hero, you know, flying the final combat mission over Japan. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and uh, and uh, you know, he, I'm not for World War generation, but uh, my father was, and. Uh, and uh, as was Jerry, and uh, you know, I don't think I've ever met a greater, uh, a better storyteller, and one, you know, who with, uh, oh God, I mean, uh, I, it just chokes me up to think about some of the great stories uh, uh, he told, uh, not only me but to members of uh, the Military Writers Society of America several years ago. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. Uh, Mark. You want to tell us a little bit about your book, and I think maybe a, a good place to start is that a lot of people probably don't know that the U.S. military has its own combat correspondents or, or combat journalists that go out. We have combat photographers. I mean, we had one that we took out on operations in Iraq in 2009. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that for you know the, the wider audience that perhaps they're not even aware that this profession exists. With pleasure. Yeah, I I sort of fell into that knowledge myself, to be honest. I had, you know, through a rather circuitous route, uh, gotten into journalism. I was writing travel pieces and uh, sort of of slid into military journalism. And as such, 
uh, began to meet many of the civilian press corps that covered Vietnam, and through them um, uh, met, uh, in, in, in my case, two Marines who had been combat correspondents in Vietnam. Uh, one I had the pleasure of meeting uh, in Washington, D.C. at um, 1997, uh, when the book Requiem for the Photographers Who Died uh, in the Vietnam War and French-Indochina War, uh, there was a celebration for that book in Washington, and that gentleman's name was Steve Stibbins. Steve was the first Stars and Stripes reporter in Vietnam, wow. going way back to 1962, <laughs> um, and he was, uh, you know, he was and is a U.S. Marine. Uh, another is a good friend of mine by the name of Sergio Ortiz. Um, and people who have studied the Vietnam War uh, and the coverage of it know that there were four deans of, uh, of the civilian press corps, Larry Burroughs from England, uh, Henri Hewitt, or UA, if my French is correct, who was half Vietnamese, half French, uh, Japanese stringer for Newsweek, I believe it was Keizaburo Shimamoto, and an American named Kent Potter. Uh, Kent was actually in the National Guard uh, and wanted to go cover uh, Vietnam, but they wouldn't let him. And so he took a leave from the Guard and came over and was a stringer for UPI. All four of those guys were uh, shot down in what was called Ap uh, Operation Lamson 719 in Laos. And Sergio, uh, who's a great photographer and writer in his own right, uh, just by chance took the last photo of all four of those gentlemen wow. alive. Uh, Sergio and I are, are, are good friends to this day. And uh, it just went from there. Um, my, the, the, as far as writing about the military journalists, it was, a, you know, the, the book probably all told took maybe eight or nine years to complete. Just uh, one interview after another. Um, and, uh, you know, then I decided to, to put it in book form, but yeah, all five services, um, including the U S coast guard, people, uh, labor under the misnomer that the coast guard only stays, you know, close to American shores. So at least I don't know about today, but at least in Vietnam, that wasn't the case. I think that I know of one coast guardsman, though he wasn't a military journalist who joined the coast guard to, you know, fulfill his obligation to serve. And the next thing you know, he got orders for Vietnam. So all five of our services had uh, combat photographers, uh, combat cameramen, including not only still photographers, but MOPIC, as they call it, motion picture, as well as those who, who wrote for the likes of Stars and Stripes uh, and their various base newsletters and, and newspapers. Yeah, I some of the more famous ones, I, I don't think they were combat correspondents, but I mean, Hunter S. Thompson and Al Gore were both military reporters at, at various times. Ab absolutely. And I tried to get Al Gore three times you know, <laughs> <laughs> to, to be a part of the book, and uh, I never heard from him personally, but his... Uh, his underling in Nashville, where he's based, uh, said, Mr. Gore is not interested. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> he didn't say that, but he just he just repeatedly said that Mr. Gore is not interested at this time. And so I gave up. Uh, another one who, um, you know, is, is well known both in civilian and military cycles is uh, or circles, rather, is Al Rockoff, who, of course, was immortalized in the film The Killing Fields uh, about uh, you know, uh, the fall to communism and to the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia in the, uh, the late seventies. Uh, Al is not in my book. Uh, I believe I tried to get him at one point and didn't hear back, but he's certainly mentioned by those who, who, um, 
went out on missions with him in my book, uh, a couple of different guys. So he, he does have a presence there. Uh, how does a, a soldier or airman or Marine walk onto this job and what are their you know responsibilities as opposed to say a civilian journalist? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, most of the, of the 33 or 34, uh, you know, guys that I interviewed, um, went to DINFOS, the Defense Information School, which while it's based at Fort Meade, Maryland now, was based at Fort, uh, Benjamin Harrison, Indiana back in the day. Uh, many of them came to, you know, uh, their MOSs, um, through previous experience working for newspapers, um, others as, you know, as little experience as working on their high school annuals, um, and, uh, you know, and hometown newspapers and others just, you know, fell into it. As I talk about high school annuals, I'm reminded of one of the guys in the book, my, my friend, uh, uh, Frank Lee, who, uh, who figures, um, that he is probably the only Chinese American Marine to have been a combat correspondent in Vietnam. And, and then he delineates it. And he said, if it's not that, I'm probably the only Chinese American Marine combat correspondent from Mississippi, uh, <laughs> who, 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 uh, ended up, uh, snapping Mopic. Um, and um, uh, tells a, a, a great story, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm uh, going off in a direction here, but, but uh, a funny story about how at some point in his, time, in his life, uh, though he's from Mississippi, his parents decided to pick up and move to L.A., and as circumstances would have it, he ended up in what was then predominantly Jewish Fairfax High School <laughs> in L.A., <laughs> and uh, got himself, uh, you know, uh, on the yearbook committee, and they made it his job to uh, go from class to class to sell the uh, the yearbook. So what does he do? He puts on a Jewish yarmulke, and he goes from class to class selling the yearbook. <laughs> and that year, Fairfax High sold more annuals than any year in Fairfax High School's history, so he says. Hmm. <laughs> So I imagine this uh, this profession takes a certain amount of uh, entrepreneurial spirit. Then, yeah, and 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 uh, you know we're we're talking about about guy, and I keep referring to guys because uh, there were no uh, there were plenty of female. Uh, you know, correspondents, writers, and photographers, uh, fewer female photographers, but there were some, one of whom is in my book because I have a special uh, section reserved in the back for the civilian reporters, three or four of the well-known ones. But these were, these were guys who, you know, they didn't just go out in the field with a camera or a, or, or a you know, a pad of a paper and a pen. They were, they were, you know, humping uh, in the boonies, uh, as the Vietnam vets used to say, uh, with full rucksacks and an M16 and a sidearm of 45, um, you know, uh, in addition to being loaded down, say, with with camera equipment. And and one of the things that you know I came away with um, uh, understanding is that they were often in a position where. Uh, you know, it was, they had to make a decision. Do I shoot my M16 or do I shoot my camera? You know, do I snap <laughs> a photo? And, and yeah, <laughs> one of the the guys in the book, Marvin Wolf, uh, another acquaintance of mine talks about how, when he's asked about Vietnam, he said, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I shot hundreds 
usually at 250 ASA. <laughs> and, uh, of course, Marv went on to write several books, among them uh, a, uh, uh, a shared book with Wen Cao Ki, the uh, former premier of, uh, of South Vietnam, uh, called uh, uh, My Fight to Save the Buddhist Child, My Fight to Save the Vietnam. But, um, yeah, it, 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 it takes a lot. Uh, and another interesting phenomena that I found, uh, chiefly uh, from the photographers, is how, and, and I'm not sure if the photographer who went out with you in Iraq, you know, said the same. I, uh, I'd be surprised because I've, um, I know several Iraq and Afghanistan vets. I, I teach English and creative writing at uh, uh, Columbia College of Missouri. They have satellite campuses on military bases all over the country and down at Gitmo. Um, and uh, I teach at the one at the Joint Forces Training Base out here at Los Alamitos, California. Anyway, I've asked, uh, you know, some of them uh, and had talked with some of the photographers in their units whether they felt the same, uh, i.e., a lot of the Vietnam guys actually felt protected behind the viewfinders. And the Iraq vets that I've talked to said, no, not, not at all. But the <laughs> Vietnam guys, several of them, you know, did, did uh, have that opinion that somehow that, you know, they were separated from the action, you know, albeit with bullets flying overhead. Uh, they're an amazing bunch of, 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 of people. And is there, I'm just trying to, figure out the the difference between say a civilian journalist and uh, a uh, military journalist that are they there simply to record for the sake of history um or are they expected to contextualize like many journalists do today right yeah and, and i and i apologize because i didn't I, I was trying to get around to no, that no no it's okay I, I didn't go there okay um uh, you know, it, it, it's 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 a question to ponder because I don't know that there's just one answer to that mm -hmm. based on the people I've talked to. In the general sense, I would say that while, um, you know, the civilian media, the press, you know, whether they set out to or not is the debate, you know, basically recorded the horrors of the war, um, the military media, the, the, the writers, the the photographers and the Mopic guys, you know, of course, ended up doing the same. But I believe that the difference in their mission was to, or their missions were, to 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 basically also show the good things mm -hmm. and the great things and the brave things that our troops were doing. Um, I think if you, you if you line the coverage up, you know, military versus civilian, there's a lot more positive coverage that you'll find of the guys who were in uniform than there was for the civilian. And I know that there's an argument um, among several Vietnam veterans that, you know, hell, it was, it was the media that lost the Vietnam War. Number one, I don't think we lost the Vietnam War. I've been to Vietnam three times since the war, and the first time was 15 years after. Uh, and uh, I saw the abject poverty that you know, communism forced those people to live under. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, number two, I'm not going to take that position. I know, you know, I've, I've, you know, I have several uh, civilian press who are in Vietnam who I consider acquaintances and friends. And, you know, I can't conceive that they deliberately set out to make us look like 
the bad guys. There was plenty of stuff that was going on that was bad north of the 17th parallel that, you know, uh, was not covered by our civilian press, but in part because probably they didn't it have could access. have meant their lives if they had gone north yeah. of the 17th parallel. So, so I, I understand that, but that would be, you know, my response. It's Among also, the, I, I think, just to interject very quickly, I think it, it's sure. a common trope. Um, you know, whenever we, we fight an unpopular war or a w- war yes. where we're seen to not win, though, in order to regain some national dignity, we want to blame somebody else. Uh, as opposed yeah. to you know um, you know blaming the media or or blaming some other you know other power Entity. it's very typical I think when when the, these things happen and we try to say no it wasn't because of the decisions that generals made it wasn't because of the decisions politicians made no it was the mm-hmm. media <laughs> it was because some guy came and wrote about what he saw in Vietnam that as if that's really what lost us the war I, I mean that's just kind of silly. I exactly right. And and uh, I mentioned Marv Wolf before. And one of the things that uh, in his chapter uh, that he mentions is and, and he's a guy who was he was with uh, the first air cab at on K in the Central Highlands. He was a, a PIO who tells some harrowing stories on his own and some funny ones, too. Um, but one of the things that he says in his chapter is you can hardly blame the media for a failed military policy. Yeah. Uh, so uh, and, and I think that there's something to be said for that at the time, because as we all know, you know, especially in Vietnam and especially in the beginning, our hands were tied. You know, there were policies I understand such as don't shoot until you're fired upon. Well, how in the heck are you going to, you know, to 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 win a war with that attitude? So, anyway, yeah. What were some of the more uh, memorable stories that came out of, uh, you know, your research? Were there any that were particular surpri- uh, particularly surprising to you um, that came out uh, during these interviews? You know, I've mentioned some of them. Um, you know, I wouldn't say surprising because I've studied and I've written about the journalists for so many years for different publications, such as Stars and Stripes mm-hmm. itself, Army Times. Uh, I was a contributing writer to uh, the AMVETS publication uh, called American Veteran for about 15 years. And I often strove to, uh, you know, to write about journalists, uh, uh, you know, such as going back to World War II, Andy Rooney and Ernie Pyle. Um, some of the more memorable ones, I think, um, you know, were Steve Stibbins, uh, Frank Lee, Marv Wolf, uh, Ken Hackman, who was an Air Force uh, combat photographer, um, you know, was one that, that uh, I guess, uh, who, you know, ran the gamut of all kinds of missions, uh, you know, both on the ground and in the air. And I've, I've got a short passage from his chapter. Do you mind if I read it real quick? Yeah, please. So we're talking about, you know, Ken Hackman, U.S. Air Force uh, uh, combat photographer. He recalls one such mission flying backseat in an F-4 out of Da Nang. Was supposed to be a three ship, me and one F 4 photographing the other two F 4s. It was a problem with one of them, so only two of us took off. It was supposed to be an easy mission, not much happening until we got airborne. And then the local FAC, Forward Air Command operators, told us we were being sent to support an FAC uh, along the coast. We had bad weather, cloudy with a ceiling of only 800 feet. I was in the lead aircraft. At one point, the pilot of Hackman's plane told his wingman, 
we're going out over the ocean. There are no mountains to run into there, and then we can drive in and see the target. The FAC told the pilot that the target was a church at the apex of two rivers that was being used to store ammo, and he didn't want to mark the target with a smoke rocket. My pilot said, you either mark it or we aren't going in, Hackman recalled. They were carrying 500-pound bombs, and the pilot of Hackman's jet started heading in at an altitude of less than 800 feet. The pilot told Hackman, I hate this. They can shoot us down with rifles. My silent reaction was, I don't need to know that. <laughs> then there were no pictures to be made, Hackman said. I'm sitting there looking at the bomb on our wing, and then it was gone. You know, I mean, <laughs> being put in a situation like that, yeah. uh, to me, you know, I mean, it's, it's bravado plus, you know, bravado on steroids, basically. True. Uh, yeah. I mean, it goes yeah, into the whole yeah. mentality of some people think these guys are fearless and it's more just, you know, they have to block out that fear, as as you're saying. Yeah, You know, I'm, I'm curious, just looking at your resume, looking at your website, which is warstoriespress.com and uh, what you've uh-huh. done throughout your career. A huge part of your career has been devoted to writing about Vietnam. What what keeps you writing about this subject? Is it just that there's always more to discover? Um, Well, you know, uh, in part, uh, you know, uh, you mentioned we've been talking about uh, our mutual friend Jim Morris. And Jim was fond of saying that that I write about, uh, you know, uh, people and places, uh, you know, that uh, have been largely unfair. Un, un, uh, unturned, I think mm-hmm. is his word. Um, and I, going back, you know, Vietnam was the war of my generation, and uh, it was a war that I didn't fight. Um, I was one of those who was, you know, safely in university uh, with what we call the 2S deferment, and then the lottery came in in 69, and I had a high number, uh, which, of course, at the time I breathed uh, a sigh of relief uh, over but uh as a you know as an older man now and even going back uh, you know 30 years uh, i feel as though uh number 1 that i missed the event of our generation and number 2 because of that you know in i wanted to make up for it and still want to make up for it in some small way by writing about uh those uh guys and women uh you know who who were in vietnam in in uh, in whatever capacity they they were in so uh, it's it's uh it's my mission really uh and it's uh, um it's one that's driven me for for many years um it uh, in a sense uh you mentioned that i was uh, a pao uh, with what's called the California State Military Reserve out here in California. We, they were, they are a support brigade to the California National Guard. And when I was in, I uh, was fortunate enough to be uh, shipped over to a U.S. Army Reserve unit that was on post at the Joint Forces Training Base, uh, the 63rd Regional Readiness Command, to write stories and in some instances uh, take uh, photos uh, of, of the people like yourself, the guys and the gals who were going over to OIF and OEF and, you know, with a little help from the men above coming home safely. Um, I think in some small way, um, I, I made, you know, I, I attempted to make up for that and did it for eight years until I decided to, to get out and devote my time to, uh, to, uh, to writing books. Um, 
and uh, it's a mission that uh, will continue. My the current project I'm working on is um, is a book uh, about uh, armed forces radio uh, Vietnam. Uh, you know, of course, when I say that, everybody thinks about Robin Williams <laughs> and Adrian Cronauer, whom he portrayed in the movie Good Morning Vietnam. And unfortunately, uh, you know, uh, uh, Adrian and Robin both uh, passed away before I've been able to complete the book. Uh, so they'll be mentioned, of course, but uh, uh, that's my current mission. Again, it's Vietnam-related. Um, I just want to do my part uh, to, in some way, make up for the service that I should have uh, enlisted into uh, back when uh, I was a much younger guy. Well, speaking of that, I'm kind of curious, um, because you talked to these uh, these gentlemen who, who served as young men in Vietnam and interviewed them, you know, 40 years, 40 some odd years after the fact. Um, mm-hmm. how, how do they feel about the war? I mean, what, do they have reflections, um, you know, in, in retrospect about how they felt about it at the time versus how they feel about it now? Uh, I was just, I'm just curious, <coughs> excuse me, if there were any... Um, sure. Any sorts of conclusions or reflections um, that that came across in these interviews? Uh, you know, they they ran the gamut. I, I would say that most most of them now feel very positive about the service. They feel that they really made a contribution um, and uh, in bringing the war home, both to you know whoever was privy to military publications and military. You know the ability to see photos and 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 motion picture that they provided. Um, uh, I don't, you know, have any recollection of anybody feeling, um, you know, negative about the war. Uh, you know, a couple of them basically are very accepting of of you know both positions. The war was was should never have happened and uh you know versus you know uh, i'm 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 you know honored that i had the chance to serve my country um and so um i would say you know percentage wise if i could lay it out and give you a percentage and thank god i'm not a math major um that most of them feel feel uh you know that it's a very important part of their lives and they're glad that uh, they served um, and I think that there's some sense that, you know, uh, not only what that what they did was worthwhile, but that the war was uh, a, you know, a noble mission, uh, certainly for for them, you know, if not for the country. It, it's interesting that, that it, that's a whole other side, a whole other perspective that doesn't really get told about the Vietnam War um, in most cases. Uh, in most cases, mm-hmm. what we hear is, you know, the war apology, um, how Vietnam was the death of the American dream. There was that, what was that big documentary on Vietnam that was done? Uh, the Ken years. Burns documentary. And, and, and some, of my, some of my friends who served in Vietnam were kind of, they were kind of angry about it, quite frankly. I, I got to tell you, I didn't serve in Vietnam, but all of my friends, for the most part, today are Vietnam veterans. I've been to Vietnam, uh, you know, three times, Laos once, Cambodia once, as a reporter, and and uh, I was angry, too. I, uh, I'll be honest with you, I, you know, I lasted, I think, the first 15 minutes of episode one, and it was like, oh, this again. You know, we've been through this. And a lot of people, including some of the guys that I interviewed, interviewed, um, you know, felt that uh, Burns and company left so much out, mainly 
you know, the South Vietnamese position. Okay. Now I, I have a, uh, uh, you know, a full disclosure, I have a sort of a vested interest in, in, in that because, number one, I married into the Vietnamese culture. Um, I speak a little bit of the language after studying it at UCLA two years uh, and, and have, you know, uh, basically dove into the history of the country going back not only to our war but the French war and, and even before Um and there's, uh, my understanding is that uh, there's, you know, one interview and it's very short. And um, the, uh, you know, that's just not fair. Uh, we were talking earlier about about the um, uh, the civilian press and, you know, my comment that there are people who, who feel that the civilian press, quote unquote, lost the war for us in Vietnam. One of the, and I have, I have been vocal about this, one of the failings, I think, of that the civilian press. Um, and I can sort of understand it because like a soldier coming home from war, I can see how a, a, a civilian photographer or, or, or writer would feel the same, you know, the burnout factor. I, I, I get that, but I'm often, you know, hearing myself questioning where were these guys who were so willing to do the great job uh, that they did while the war was going on, when after Saigon fell and the communists, you know, came in in tanks um, in, in the, into Saigon on April 30th, 1975, and thereafter, where were these guys to report on the atrocities that occurred to the people of South Vietnam, many of them former soldiers? Um, I have a brother-in-law who was a uh, a South Vietnamese Marine. He was, uh, I believe, a warrant officer himself, and he was subjected to six years in a communist re-education camp, kept ex- escaping, kept getting caught, and then got out as a boat person to Malaysia and then settled in Canada. Um, I, the only person of any renown that I know of who, who, com- who, who basically registered uh, her feelings about that was not a reporter in Vietnam, but it was the folk singer Joan Baez, you know, one of the protesters of the Vietnam War, whose, hus- whose husband at the time, David Harris, her ex-husband, actually went to jail for turning in his, uh, you know, his, his draft card uh, for a time. She took out a full-page ad in the New York Times decrying the atrocities that the North Vietnamese communists were basically inflaming the South Vietnamese people with. And to my knowledge, I don't, I don't know of any, uh, you know, of the Bao Chi, the, the press, the journalists who covered, uh, you know, Vietnam for our side, so to speak, uh, who, who spoke up about that. And it hurts. Yeah, no, it definitely does. And I, I think part of it, at least, is related to, you know, as Americans, we have an infatuation with ourselves as Americans. It's actually kind of like a narcissism. <laughs> that, me, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I was just saying, it's kind of, we kind of have a narcissism in, in thinking that, you know, America is the center of, of the universe. Um, and a lot of times we don't report on or we don't focus on what is going on elsewhere in the world that has nothing to do really with Americans when, you know, communist atrocities or other sorts of war atrocities that happen. And, and if it doesn't involve America somehow, um, I, I feel like sometimes there's a, uh, an effort to make a, a round peg fit in a square hole to try to make America responsible or failing that we just don't report it at all because it doesn't have a, uh, an American connection. Um, but anyway, that's my, yeah. my take on it. 
yeah, it, it, there's a certain degree of pomposity, isn't there, in that in that regard? I mean, it goes back to the whole image of, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the um, uh, the ugly American traveler, who, sure, <laughs> you know, who who comes to a country and just expects them uh, wherever they are to speak English. And I, I as as someone who has has taught English for I don't know forty six, forty seven years now. Um, you know, I guess you could say the sad fact is that it's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Wow. So this is a, uh, it's an amazing book. I mean, are there any other stories or anything else that came out of this that you really think we should hit upon? Uh, you know, yeah, I, I absolutely. There, there's a section in the back of the book and, and, and by the way, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'd be remiss if I didn't say how happy I am that uh, Casemate Publishers, uh, based in the UK, but also in Philadelphia, um, uh, not only published the book, but uh, is in this with me in a joint effort to get the book out, you know, in as many mediums as we can, such as this one. Great people uh, whom I would encourage any of the military writers who might be listening to this to to approach about about your books. Um, I, I, you know, off the top of my head, I, I would say that... Um, uh, I'm glad that I included uh, a, a section in the back that deals with about three or four of the civilians, um, one of whom is uh, Eddie Adams. Eddie Adams was, was most noted for taking the picture of uh, uh, General Luan, who, uh, you know, with a Lady Smith & Wesson uh, special shot a Viet Cong in the head. Uh, outside of a Buddhist temple yeah, in Cholon, and the famous you know the photo, everybody, yeah, knows. yeah, yeah. Um, and Eddie, uh, you know, a lot of people don't know about Eddie. First of all, he was a Marine in the Korean War, and he was the first one that I heard personally at a lecture uh, here in L.A. many years ago talk about how he felt protected behind the viewfinder, um, and um, uh, you know. What a lot of people don't know about that photo is that um, General Luan, uh, who who shot that Viet Cong, well, moments before that happened, that same Viet Cong had shot at point-blank range uh, his lieutenant, General Luan's lieutenant, the lieutenant's wife, and his children. Um, yeah, yeah uh, number one. Number two, uh, Eddie felt uh, remorse for having taken that photo, um, number one, because he, 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 he felt that it sort of, you know, pegged him for the rest of his life. And most importantly, he felt that he had ruined General Luan's life. The two of them were fast friends until uh, I think Luan passed away first. And Eddie felt that he had relegated Luan to the life of owning a pizza parlor in Virginia. Luan, for his part, uh, didn't feel the same. And they, they, um, they had, um, you know, a great friendship uh, going while they were both alive. Um, talk about storytellers, as we were in talking about Jerry Yellen and Jim Morris. Um, Eddie told a great story, if I have a, a minute just sure. to Please. divulge this, about um, going down to Havana with a reporter, I believe it was for the New York Times, to uh, interview Fidel Castro. And, uh, you know, whoever in Castro's regime kept them holed up in their hotel 
uh, in Havana for two weeks, and Castro never appeared. And Eddie was most famous for, uh, you know, I dare not say it, but uh, using the F word with the second person singular whenever he was angry. (laughs) And um, at one point after two weeks, he went to the journalist and said, you know, uh, I've had enough, I'm going back to New York. And the journalist you know, pleaded with him, come on, let's stay. And he said, F you, I'm going back to New York, which he did. A couple of weeks later, he's in his studio in New York, comes a knock at the door, and it's an emissary from the Cuban mission at the UN. And the guy says, El Presidente would like to see you, senor. And Eddie Adams said, F you, I was down there for two weeks and he never showed up. And he says, no, no, senor, El Presidente would like to see you. And so Eddie Adams grabs the reporter. They go back down there. Interview goes on in Havana, and Eddie's snapping away. And Fidel gets up to leave, and Eddie says to Fidel, he says, he says, uh, you know, Presidente, you know, I, I haven't taken any photos. And Castro says, well, Eddie, what have you been doing? Castro, who, by the way, speaks fluent English. He just doesn't like, he didn't like to do it, you know, in public. Um, and Eddie says, he says to him, well, he says, I'd like to get you in your element. What say you and me go jogging down on the beach? <laughs> and Fidel says to him, Eddie, Havana has many beaches. I have a better idea. I'll take you to where I go duck hunting. But you'd better not tell the CIA where it is. <laughs> so they go <laughs> they, <laughs> they go off and go duck hunting. Adams comes back to his, his New York digs, and he's looking through photos, and he finds one that someone else took of him and Castro with a string of ducks at their feet. So he says, what the heck? He says, I'd like to get the autograph. I'd like to get Fidel's autograph. But he, he had no, you know, premonition, you know, no, no conception that he would ever get the photo back. So he sends the photo to, to, to Castro in, in, in Havana. About a month later, the photo comes back and it's signed to my friend Eddie. I shot all the ducks. Your friend Fidel. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. What, what year was that? Oh, like sixty three, sixty four? Well, I don't know when he went down. I saw Eddie Adams probably. I want to say in the early nineteen nineties. It was at a talk that he gave at the uh, the American Society uh, of uh, of uh, of uh, photographers. ASMP. That's not what it stands for, but I'll look it up and I'll and I'll tell you when we get off mic here. But um, anyway, it was the talk that he gave at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel in Hollywood that I was, uh, you know, invited to. And um, uh, when he went down to to uh, to uh, you know photograph Fidel was probably sometime just be just before that. So it wasn't going back during during the war. Uh, at all. Interesting. That's a crazy yeah. story. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and then of course, another would be, um, another famous photographer, the Vietnamese photographer, uh, you know, Nick Ut, who took the picture of Kim Fook, the napalm girl, um, yeah. getting to, 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 to know Nick, uh, through, through other friends. Um, and, you know, I haven't seen him in a few years. So he's since retired from the Associated Press. But, um, you know, uh, just uh, getting to know Nick and, and uh, hear about how that picture came about. And incidentally, um, meeting Kim Fook uh, at a restaurant um, uh, several years ago in, uh, in L.A. through Nick uh, has been uh, one of the... Uh, you know the highlights of uh, of, uh, of my life, and plus she was very impressed with my Vietnamese, which I uh, <laughs> yeah the, the I take with me to heart. 
the uh, woman who's the little girl in the photograph, I mean, she she's in the United States now, isn't she? Uh, no, she's in Canada. Ah, okay. uh, what happened was uh, she married uh, a gentleman and um, uh, in Havana. And, and by the way, she speaks fluent Spanish from her years in Havana, uh, where she she uh, she became the poster child for for the the you know imperial for the America yeah. of the Vietnam War. Yeah, and uh, she went to to pharmacy school in Havana. Uh, met uh, another gentleman down there. Uh, and uh, they they went to Russia for their honeymoon because they didn't have many options. And coming back, the plane stopped in Gander, Newfoundland, and they ran off the plane, or you know, and uh, uh, declared uh, you know political asylum in in in, uh, uh, in Canada. She um, that that uh, her husband, by the way, is a Christian pastor uh, now, and they live outside of Toronto. Uh, and, um, no, it's, it's, it's an endearing story about how Nick and her reconnected, uh, first in Havana, uh, a good friend of mine by the name of, uh, Jim Cacavo, who mm-hmm. was the Red Cross photographer and writer in uh, Vietnam between 68 and 70, uh, covered the story for the LA Times, went down there with him, uh, with Nick, uh, and he met with Kim, and, uh, a couple years later, uh, she was actually in Mexico and uh, somehow got word to Uncle Nick, as uh, she called him, uh, that, uh, you know, that she was OK and hoped to see him one day. Uh, and that has since happened several times, uh, you know, in in recent years. Yeah, I recall seeing her in a, maybe it was a CNN interview um, talking about mm-hmm. her, her thoughts about the photograph and there's, you know, a, one part of her, you know, in the past, she supported it, thought it was a good thing. And now she looks back and I said, she, like, she's changed her mind several times about how she feels about it, which I guess is uh, understandable. It's a very uh, haunting photograph. You're right. And it almost didn't make the light of day because there was a question about frontal nudity. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, Horst Foss, who was the Saigon Photo Bureau Chief for the Associated Press, uh, put his foot down. Uh, he got some backlash, uh, uh, I think, from uh, New York on it, and he put his foot down, and they sent the photo to the Tokyo Bureau, which which ran it. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the rest is, is history. Foss himself, uh, who has since passed away, was uh, one of those uh, civilian photographer uh, uh, extraordinaires. Uh, Nick actually started with the AP as a young man. I think he was 16 years old. Uh, his brother uh, had been an AP photographer. He was also a well-known actor in uh, in Vietnam who was killed. Wow. Uh, and to help support the family, the AP gave Nick a job in the darkroom. Um, but he got stifled there after a while, and uh, he um, kind of, you know, pleaded his case with some of his fellow AP writers. And I think one of them who went to bat for him was uh, uh, Peter Arnett, who, uh, uh, you know, everyone knows from his years at CNN, but Peter was in Vietnam for the Associated Press and, uh, you know, uh, eased Nick out into the street and onto the battlefields uh, where uh, he was able to take some compelling shots. One of the interesting stories about Nick is when he got to L.A., AP's first assignment for him was to cover an L.A. Dodger game. He'd never seen a, a baseball game in his life, and yet he was able to take some of the most compelling photos of the game, you know, uh, uh, in uh, in the AP's uh, you know library. 
That's so cool. Yeah. Well, the book is out right now. It's once again Vietnam Bouchi. I was going to ask you about the meaning of Bouchi, but you but you mentioned that earlier of yeah. that that, that yeah. is mm-hmm. what these men did. That's what they were called. Um, right, press or journalist. Right. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, it's out now. It's a beautiful hardcover. Uh, but you can get it on Amazon anywhere else. I saw the photo of you at Barnes and Noble uh, with it in uh-huh. good company with some other great books. And uh, you can uh-huh. check out all your other books as well for the audience, which is at warstoriespress.com and see all of Mark's other work. Uh, it's been great having you on, and, and I'm glad we were able to do this. Ian, it's been, it's been a, an honor to be with you. As I said, I feel like I've been, I'm in great company, and uh, I would be remiss if I didn't say to you, uh, you know, thank you for your service. You could thank Jack for his service, because I, uh, oh, I'm sorry. You, you have more service than, than myself. I've, well, Jack, I've done nothing. <laughs> Jack, thank you for your service, and welcome home. Oh, I understand thank you, Jack Mark. was a Green Beret, uh, much like Jim Morris. Yeah. I do apologize. No, no, no it's not a problem. Uh, I, I just worry that the audience is going to say that I'm a stolen valor guy if I get thanked for my service. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, Jim Morris is a terrific guy. We've had him on the uh, on the podcast a bunch of times, and we always run out of time because there's about a million things I, I want to talk to uh, talk to him about. Um, but, no, this book is great. I've been looking through it myself. We I have it right here in front of me, Vietnam Bao Chi. Um, I really think people should go and pick this up and take a look at it because as uh, you mentioned earlier, I mean, this is kind of one of those untold stories of the Vietnam War. And uh, those are my favorite stories to write about myself and to feature on this podcast. Yeah. And if I could just add the cool thing about the book, too, is every chapter is, you know, a different guy with a different story. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, you know it, it's uh, to my knowledge, uh, it's it's the first of its kind. Uh, you know, as as you said earlier, a lot of stuff out there uh, either about the civilian press or by the civilian press, um, and uh, you know, but but this is the first of its of its kind that that covers uh, you know uh, the military who 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 did the job. Um, and, uh, you know, in so doing, by the way, uh, it, it's not a hundred percent, uh, across the board, but many of these military guys felt the camaraderie with their civilian counterparts and often, you know, uh, shared tents with them and sea rats and, and, uh, you know, got the civilian guys, uh, photos and stories run. Um, and, uh, though not all of them felt that way, most of them in my experience did, um, uh, they felt that they were driving down that same road, and they certainly faced uh, the same dangers uh, that, uh, uh, you know, the military guys did. Uh, military guys had two jobs. They had their M-16s, and they had their cameras and their pens and pads of paper. And uh, it's a, you know, it, it's a miracle that uh, many of them, you know, were able to come home, but I'm glad they did. And uh, it's, uh, again, uh, it's been an honor to be with you guys. And I apologize to you. And Jack, again, welcome home. And thanks for your service. Oh, thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate the, the being here. It was an honor. And uh, anytime you want to do this again, I'm happy to do it. Okay, guys? For sure. Right. We'll talk soon. Absolutely. Great episode there with Mark. Uh, 
I just didn't want to get accused of, of stolen valor. Every now and again, there's there's new listeners, too, who assume that I've served. It's happened a few times. That's because I keep dropping dime to, on you on, uh, you know, secret Facebook uh, forums for uh, <laughs> stolen valor. Like, do you believe this douchebag Ian Scotto? I'll, I'll still always remember. I mean, by the way, leave reviews, please, on Apple Podcasts. You know, they're overwhelmingly positive. But my favorite negative review about me was always the guy who said, uh, you know, the producer of this show never served, but he acts like he was in a tier one unit. <laughs> I'm like, how? <laughs> I don't think I've ever, you know, but that was, yeah, I'll always remember that review. Whoever left that. That's awesome. <laughs> I have a few. Fa- it just made me laugh. A few of my favorite descriptors. Uh, one guy described me as a bearded cash hog. That was my, <laughs> that's, I think that's my favorite. And there's another, there's a, a woman who reviewed my, one of my novels and she said, who do you think you are, Jack? A lone wolf howling at the moon? <laughs> I think of- I remember seeing that. That was, was that for Grey Matter Splatter? No, I think it's for direct action. Because I think I remember a review, too, on Grey Matter Splatter where it said, it was just that they mentioned the title. They were like, Grey Matter Splatter, Jack, really? Grow up. Yeah, that was, it was the same review, yeah. <laughs> she, was mad, she was mad at me because I ruined her, uh, you know, you know, she had a very, I guess, positive view of the military, and you know the novel speaks about some of the negative things. And yeah, she didn't really like that. So, yeah, I think some people assume that if if you know you're a veteran journalist doing what you do, or a fiction writer, that you're going to paint this uh, picture of the military with the flag waving, and yeah, well, you know that's that's I've, one part of the military, but that's definitely not everything. I, I've talked about this with a friend of mine, and he he actually pointed out to me um, during an interview that maybe he'll publish down the line. He's like, you know we get treated differently <laughs> than most journalists because we, we did actually serve. Uh, and people have certain expectations of you that you're supposed to be, you know, leading the band, yeah. uh, so to speak. And they get pretty pissed off well, if you're not, you know. I, I've explained that to people too. Uh, I mean, you guys who are listeners for a long time know about controversies with the stu- site, with stuff that we've published. But I've always said whether it's, you know, a sexual... Uh, sexual harassment type of thing going on at the VA that you've written about, or if it's a great story, you know, and and it's newsworthy, you're going to write about it. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm, I am not a public affairs officer and I know that I'm, I'm aware of the fact that I'm no longer in the military. Uh, so it's not my job to be a spokesman for the U S military. That's just the reality of it. And if that's who you think you are, if that's what you want to be, then go be a public affairs officer. That's fine. Yeah. And you know what sucks is I think some of the loudest voices on social media are the guys who will criticize things that you've published. But there's plenty of people on the other side who are like, thank you for publishing this. Thank you for putting this out there. Yeah. I mean, I heard just the other day from somebody inside a, let's just say, a special operations command. And he was like, everyone in this office reads your website, especially when, like, when a big story gets dropped. And, you know, you see everyone in the office, like, reading the story, just, like, nodding their heads, like, yep, that's pretty much how it went down. Yeah. And even, you know, you've had Gold Star parents reach out to you whose children were affected by things that we've published and have said, thank you for publishing this. All kinds of, I mean, there's so many different stories. I've heard from the children of Special Forces soldiers who contacted me because I wrote about their dad and or or about their mom. In one case, I wrote about a woman who served. That's right who served on an ODA uh, on a uh, blue light in the 1970s. And her son found that article because he knew basically nothing about what his mom did in the military. And sh- he found that article and he, and he printed it out and he gave it to his mom on mother's day. 
and like it meant so much to them. Didn't you say we're hoping to get her on? I, I, I would like. Yes, she's uh, she's doing good. Uh, I would love to have her on, and I uh, I keep twisting her arm a little bit. <laughs> that, come on, come on, please. She, I mean, I think she really is legitimately the only woman to ever serve on an ODA on a special forces team. That'd be a huge interview. Um, and she uh, was brought on in a, uh, in a, in a uh, presumably, well, not presumably, but the intention behind it was that she could help gather intelligence because as a woman, she could go places and do things that a guy can't. We got to get her on. But she also shot guns and ruck marched and parachuted out of airplanes. And she did all the things. And this is in, uh, you know, uh, special forces, 1970, 1978, or I'm sorry, 77, 78. Uh, you know, male dominated organization, but I'll tell you all the guys I talked to about her were like, she was great. Like, well, like we were a little, they, they definitely had their trepidations about it. Um, when they found out there was going to be a woman on the team, but they were like, no, she, she was value added to the team. Um, and they all spoke very highly of her. Well, where could people see that article again? I mean, the shirt's still at news or what's the title? Uh, it's about blue light and it's like, uh, probably like a 12 part series that I did about blue light. Um, so do you you remember the title? Cause let me see if I just Google type in like news rep plus blue light and it'll come up. Um, there, so is this part one blue light part one from the special forces, uh, America's first counterterrorism yep, unit. That's, that's it. Okay. And actually, you can go on my, my personal website, uh, jackmurphywrites.com, and I put the PDF of the whole article on there. Perfect. That you can download it and just read it in one shot. That's right, because if I remember... Oh, no, no, no. no this is, I, I was going to say that you wrote this while you were in, North, while you were in uh, South Korea, but no. No. Oh, no. The, I wrote another article about... Um, special forces detachment Korea. Yep. I remember. And that's like another, that's another big one. Like a 22 part series that, that was published, you know, serialized on the website. This is 2016. So, um, and you know, and then there's another one, uh, a multi-part series about detachment a in Berlin. Uh, that was another big one. SF history one I worked on, but, um, yeah, those are the, I'm really proud of those articles and those are the positive things. Those are the cool things, uh, good things that our military does that, yeah. uh, I'm very happy, um, that I was able to write that stuff. That's great. Well, uh, speaking of, you know, interesting guests that we've had on, uh, I just put it up last night as we're recording, but from what I've seen so far, some really great feedback of that, uh, Fred Galvin episode, um, one of the editors at the site, even, you know, Nick Kaufman, who was praised a lot throughout the interview was like, I may be biased, which you probably are, <laughs> but he was like, that's my favorite interview you guys have done. Well, I'll see, uh, as more people comment on it, but I, I thought it was good. I mean, uh, yeah, it was a great interview. It, I think, I mean, I'm biased yeah. also. I was just very happy with, uh, the conversation, but I thought Fred was extremely candid, especially his criticism of our foreign policy and the military is a guy who wants yeah. to, to continue his service. Um, you know, extremely critical of, of what goes on. Yeah. I I think Fred is, uh, he must be a Marine through and through because most guys who go through that, um, that whole, um, process of, um, being doubted and being called all these things that he was called and, and, and essentially being persecuted, um, most of those people just leave the military and disappear and you yeah. never hear from them because they're, they're just so disgusted. The only um, person I could think of that's, you know, similar situation, but even worse was, you know, Michael Bahena who served time because of it. And yeah, he seems like a guy who's completely off the radar and, and yeah. was open that he regretted, you know, joining. But and, 
But Fred is somebody who, you know, wants to come back in. He yeah. wants back in. <laughs> yeah. And and we need those type of people, I think. We do. I mean, the the importance of having people with integrity and keeping them in the ranks, I mean, it can't be um, underestimated. And, you know, what Fred was saying kind of hit home with me because he's like, you know, the system wants yeah. the good people to get out. They want the people who are malleable to stay in. And that kind of hit me like right fucking in the heart because I like I got out and a lot of other people got out because we were disgusted with the things we saw. And yeah, you could make the argument if we stayed, maybe we would we could have some kind of role in in slowly changing things. But that's one of those questions you get into. It's like a chicken and the egg conversation. Like if you stay, are you perpetuating and participating in a corrupt system? Or maybe you're making it worse because you're helping to prop it up. And I, I don't claim to have the answer to that question. I also just think you can't live with regrets like that in life. I, I personally try not to. I mean, I it's all, I, it's also like one of those things like you cannot be an unmotivated special operations soldier. Yeah. Which is what I was becoming because of the things I saw. Sure. Like you have to be a highly motivated Green Beret or Ranger or whoever you are. And I was one of those people like, getting to the point where I was, I was going to become that crusty old uh, sergeant first class that's sure. grumpy walking around with my cup of coffee in one hand and a cigarette in the other, just bitching and moaning about everything all day. Yeah. And like, like, that's not good for me as a person. And that wouldn't be good for the unit either. You know, I, I would be, I'd be counterproductive. Yeah. I mean, at, at the team room parties, people have uh, asked me who didn't serve, or people have said to me as well who didn't serve that I've met at team room parties for, you know, when we were doing those in Vegas. They're like, oh, you know, every day I regret not joining the military, and, and that's why they love our site and love the podcast. I, I don't know. I don't really share those feelings. I, I, I just don't think you can live every day with regret. I did something no. different. I don't know what would have happened, you know. Maybe maybe I would have died. Like a lot of people would have. You know, what, why regret the yeah. life that I'm living now? And uh, yeah, you know, I, I do think those people. If if you do feel that way and you feel like you didn't get to do, um, you know, what you should have done at that point for your country, you could always volunteer. There's plenty of there's plenty yeah. of use for all of us. Well, you know? also you know, be careful what you wish for. I mean, you could be one of those guys that, like you said, get killed or. You know, you you get limbs blown off, or yeah. you come back with PTSD and TBI, and you know, guys suffering with you know joblessness and homelessness, and uh, and there, there's plenty of guys who need help from people who took another path and and could help these guys. Whether you yeah. want to volunteer at a VA hospital, that's for sure, that's for sure. or um, you know, anything else. I mean, there's plenty of nonprofits out there that we've highlighted on this show that that could use those type of people. Um, Anyway, wrapping things up here, be sure to check out Crate Club. We have different tiers of membership depending on how prepared you want to be. And gift options are available as well. All those guys that you hear from the loadout room and the people at the site who are part of Crate Club are working on putting together great gear. 100% custom products made for you. Everything from sunglass cases to EDC bags and other manly products. It's a club for men, by men. You can check that all out at CrateClub.us. Once again, that's CrateClub.us. Join and be a part of the community. Uh, Also, as a reminder for all those who are listening, now is the time to sign up for the Spec Ops channel. That's our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. 
The Spec Ops Channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops Channel. That's at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a membership for only $4.99 a month. Only $4.99 a month. That's specopschannel.com. Sign up today. Last thing I'm going to mention, you and I were on a call yesterday with Nick Kaufman, and we're really heavily pushing this out and hope that you guys join, and that's the News Rep Financial Report. This has exclusive information that you can act on today to secure a brighter future for tomorrow. The News Rep Financial Report can help you discover new investment strategies in the defense sector. Defense industry stocks can be a lucrative investment if you buy at the right time. Our team of foreign policy, security, and military experts provide real-time intelligence for stocks based on global trends that affect financial markets in the national defense industry. By subscribing now, you'll get exclusive access to our industry expertise. The NewsRep Financial Newsletter Advantage, which is our team that offers unmatched defense industry familiarity and expertise, unbiased knowledge of geopolitical trends, full access to NewsRep's foreign policy, security, and financial intelligence platform, and access to our team of experts and analysts. Just go to the FinRep tab. It's at the top of the newsrep.com and sign up today. It's FinRep at the top of the newsrep.com. Check it out. And uh, I guess that's it. Wrapping things up. Just pick up one uh, other thing. Vietnam Bao Chi. One other thing to mention. So this stupid news feed crap that shows up on my cell phone, uh, Fox News story on Jeffrey Epstein. And look at the way they frame it. Department of Justice to investigate plea bargain awarded to Clinton-linked sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> yeah, of course. Now, I mean, you could write that same headline and say Trump-linked yeah, yeah. sex offender. Which I've seen some people on Twitter saying, you know, your friend Jeffrey Epstein. And those, yeah. those are the games that are getting played. It's just, yeah. and, and I think that's why, as we were saying earlier, why this didn't get mentioned during the 2016 election. Yeah. Because, yeah, they couldn't use it on each other. Right. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens, man. Um, more and more articles. And I'm sure that if you turn on Fox News, which I don't, I don't turn on any of the news channels if you think that's a shot at don't the, do them. Don't do they're, it. They're probably, you know, split screen debates talking about Hillary Clinton's ties to this. Um, yeah. But anyway, uh, once again, pick up the Vietnam Bao Chi by Mark Yablanca. Some great stuff coming up uh, in the next week. We're going to have BK on to talk about <laughs> uh, getting banned on Twitter. Did you see, by the way, did you see that thing he was posting uh, with one of these woke vets on Twitter? No. He was going back and forth. I don't know who this guy is, so I don't want to criticize him because I know nothing about him. Oh, but, you I, know, I bet I do. BK just loves, you know poking at people this guy one sandwich away from fat on twitter no i don't know who that one but i just i I was laughing so during i think it was during the state of the union he wrote if you think diversity in the military is bad then you don't understand who we are or what we do if you're in the military and think diversity in the military is bad then you need to take your bigoted ass somewhere else we don't need you so of course bk responded Dude, you're a desk jockey. Anyone could do your job. The men's jobs require men. <laughs> he just loves fucking with people. So, you know, it's probably stuff like that that got him banned. Um, There's a, I don't understand this whole movement that, like, the military is like a platform for diversity. It's like, uh, I mean, yeah, I think there's, like, equal opportunity and, and all that good stuff. Yeah, but, like, 
why is the military like being held up like it's supposed to be this platform for progressive values or something like what the fuck is going on i think it's just because that's everything today yeah it's it's just like what's hip and trendy and cool you know yeah but i I mean if you work for a major company you know it it is it's diverse and and it's also because it has to be legally you know with um the way that we do things now you have to have certain jobs allocated for females and or you're you know i've i know of companies where you have a lawsuit on your hands if you're not giving enough jobs to females, giving enough high up positions to females or to minorities. It's just the way it is. Uh, I mean, I think the military should definitely um, do more to reach out to minorities. Like that, that article you sent me yesterday about the Navy yeah. SEAL, he's an African-American um, former SEAL. And from, he, from, I believe, Nigeria. Yeah. 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 And, and he was talking about that. He's like, like, we need to do a better job at like reaching out to minority communities and saying like, hey, there are these opportunities for you in the special operations world. Um, and that's good for those those young men or potentially young women. And, and that's also good for the military because um, from a, a special operations perspective, a black guy can go places to do things that I, obviously I can't do. Yeah. Um, a woman can go places and do things I can't do. Uh, you know, the typical image that, that people have of a, of a special operator is a, uh, you know, a six foot three white guy who uh, deadlifts 600 pounds. Um, but that five foot two Mexican kid can blend in in dozens of cultures that I can't blend in. in. So, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not like anti-diversity. No, of course. Or anti-inclusivity or whatever buzzword it is we're using today. Uh I just don't understand why the military is seen by some people as solely a platform to advance you know, quote unquote progressive values. Uh, like what world are you living in? People, people are coming to see uh, on the left are coming to see the CIA in the same light um, that they, they think that the CIA is like a vehicle to advance a progressive agenda. It's like, have you ever read anything about the CIA and, what their mandate is it's strategic intelligence <laughs> it's not yeah. it's not whatever weird shit you think it is um but yeah i guess it's the zeitgeist of our times isn't it yeah hopefully we have that guy on uh you know he's done some acting i'll, I'll reach out to him he was in uh, one of the transformers yeah movies. yeah i'd, I'd love to like have cool i'd love to have him on he seems like he has a great story yeah and what he's saying is true. I mean, the guys that we've had on the show that are minorities, uh, honestly, you look at photos of them and it's like them surrounded by a bunch of white guys. <laughs> it's true. I look at Curtis Albers or Jake Zwig or Nick Irving. Uh, they, they're they usually like the lone black dude in there. Well, in, in Ranger Battalion, there are not very many black guys. Um, yeah. That's just a fact. Or in the SEAL teams. Um, there's, a, there's a handful, but, I know. But... but the caveat to that, though, is in Ranger Battalion, at least when I was there, we had a ton of Hispanic guys. I remember there. you telling me this, a, yeah. A lot, like half of my platoon was was Hispanic. Um, so, I mean, there are quite a few minorities. Um, but then you get into the whole question of, like, why aren't there more black rangers? And our unit was always coming under various investigations over that, like congressional investigations. Well, did, did, did guys try? I mean, that's, th- that's the thing is that in the Ranger indoctrination program, today it's called RASP, um, at least when uh, speaking from my own experience, when I went, there weren't that many black guys who yeah. showed up so for, so, it's for not, selection. Not the military's problem. Well, some people would say it is, right? And some people, uh, all kinds of weird arguments get advanced. Um, but... 
there's always that heritage thing, I should say, because I've seen that with the fire department, too. If your father was a firefighter, if your grandfather, and, it, you know, that's there, why there's a lot of white dudes. If you're someone like um, Frumentarius, whose father was a SEAL, you know, it's carrying on oh, that yeah. legacy. Yeah, his entire family were SEALs, basically. Um, but there's, there have been some studies done, and I, I believe, I don't have this, any of these studies in front of me right now, but as I recall, one of the things that they, they concluded was that um, the African-American community, uh, typically, when they join the military, they're joining the military for jobs training. Uh, whereas a white guy is more likely to join the military because they're like, rah, 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 patriotism, let's go fight. Rah. Yeah. You know, like, like people who come out of minority communities have a more pragmatic uh, approach to it, and they're like, We're, this is like a stepping stone. This is my, this is my way out of a lifestyle and, uh, and to you know, do something with myself and, and do something positive with my life. Um, so I think that's part of the reason why you don't see or have not seen in the past so many black people go into units like Ranger Battalion, um, because being a Ranger doesn't really set you up for success necessarily yeah. in the private sector. <laughs> well, uh, like I said, we have BK, so we'll get into exactly what, if he even knows what got him banned, because he does this type of thing all the time. He likes to start fights on Twitter. Uh, and then we're also airing our interview with uh, Max Martini. Uh, yeah, that, that was a actor. really good one. Um, I, I'm looking forward to, uh, well, the one we, we already recorded, the interview with Max Martini, which was really good. And uh, I'm looking forward to having BK on. I'm probably going to argue with him, yeah. but um, but it'll be it'll be interesting. The times he's been on is, is always fun. <laughs> he's, he's a fun dude. So, all right, have a great weekend, everybody. And uh, you know what? If you're uh, still hungry for a podcast, go check out the power of thought because i'll be recording a new one of those uh, immediately following this you've been listening to soft rep radio new episodes up every wednesday and friday follow the show on instagram and twitter at soft rep radio